This episode of the My Latin Life podcast is brought to you by Language Blend, the new best way to learn Spanish. Language Blend focuses on what you actually need to live and get by abroad with daily one-on-one lessons, a dedicated texting partner. It's like living in a Spanish-speaking country without ever leaving home. Go to languageblend.com for more information. Welcome back to another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. Today, I have two esteemed guests with me here. This is the first time I think we've had two guests, so it'll be a, a great conversation. We have David L'Esperance and we have Melvin Warshaw. So one in Canada, one in the States. We're going to talk about a lot of issues facing both Canadians and Americans abroad. These guys are experts in their field, and we're happy to have them on. How's it going, guys? Uh, great, Vance. Thank you very much. Vance, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And uh, I guess so people can get accustomed to each one of your voices, I'll have David go first and do uh, a little bit of a, a self-introduction, David. Sure. Uh, Canadian born and raised in Windsor, now currently living in Poland. I uh, have become non-resident in Canada three times myself on the Canadian side, so very uh, personally familiar with the issues for Canadians becoming Mm -hmm. non-resident. Also kind of grew up in the border. Father would wake up in Canada to go and work in the the U.S., so very familiar and grew up with the Canada-U.S. tax treaty issues and did my first expatriation in 1990, so again, three-plus decades in dealing with uh, Americans um, who have left and are either living abroad or Americans who have actually uh, expatriated uh, from the U.S. tax system. And my background is that I uh, grew up in Boston, uh, went to college in upstate New York, law school in the Midwest. And then my first job was working in the general counsel's office, the Internal Revenue Service National Office in Washington, D.C. I have a master's in tax from Georgetown came back to Boston and practiced with a medium-sized firm in Boston. And then I was recruited to work for McDermott, Will & Emery, which is a very prominent international tax and private client firm in many jurisdictions. Uh, Subsequently, I worked at J.P. Morgan Private Bank. And um, I have very significant experience um, on these types of matters. Sweet. Well, thank you both for for joining us today. We got David in Poland and Mel, you're in Boston today or where are you at? In Wellesley, Massachusetts. Awesome. Beautiful town just outside of Boston. Um, Great. So thank you both for your time. I think we're going to have a a great discussion kind of talking about different issues that digital nomads and expats face. I think um, we'll, we'll try to touch on issues both for Canadians and for Americans, but I guess Americans are the majority of the audience, so we'll probably spend more time on that. And uh, we'll just try to get into as many in-the-weeds topics as we can and and provide just very actionable, specific advice, because I think that's what people like. You know, anyone can do the high-level, you know, tyranny Canada type stuff, but I would rather just get really into the details because you guys command a very high price per hour or project, I'm sure. And so... We're happy to to kind of you know get the the free knowledge here uh, for all the listeners. How's that sound? Terrific. That sounds great. 
Cool. So where should we start? Uh, David, so you've uh, left the Canadian tax system three times. So you've like gone back and forth, I guess. Yes. I mean, like many immigrants, uh, it's it's driven by personal situation and circumstances. Um, I left Canada to uh, for, for work uh, in Hong Kong, then came back, and that was uh, for my first marriage. And then with my first wife, I moved to the UK, uh, became what's called a non-dom in the UK, and then uh, that ended, and then... Uh, divorce and I had 10 years of being Phileas Fogg. And then my current wife uh, fell asleep on me in an airplane. And um, we had our children in Toronto and I left before Mr. Trudeau ascended the throne the first time um, <laughs> for a couple of reasons. But often it was kind of personally living. We lived right in downtown Toronto, which was wonderful for uh, double income, no children, but um, not a lot of parks. And, uh, and things and how often can you go to the aquarium. And so we moved out. So part of it is drivers that people are interested in moving that, that are telling or they're leaving because of concerns or situation. And part of it is often a draw. So in that circumstances, we left Canada, we came to Poland and was, this was the first grandchildren for my I have twins now nine years old. It was the first grandchildren for my in-laws. We wanted to ground their mother's native language. My wife had lived in London, Dubai, Palm Beach. I met her when she was living in New York. So we were quite used to, you know, picking up and moving and, and changing countries. And it's a lot of those kind of situations and, and reasons. And for Can Canadians versus Americans, in Canada, leaving for Canadian purposes is... It's like dying. It's effectively you you are dying to the Canadian tax system with a deemed disposition. Most Canadians will have probably a home where there's a principal residence exemption, and they may have RSPs for the American audience. That's kind of like your retirement an, an ISA in the UK or or a, a IRA in the in the US, um, and you kind of just pay the tax, or you can actually keep the those types of things. So it's much simpler. Whereas for the U.S., because of its citizenship-based taxation, and they also tax, one of the things that Mel and I talked about earlier that we want to emphasize is the U.S. also, you are a U.S. taxpayer if you have a green card. And just because your resident alien card, which used to be green, hence the term, expires, doesn't mean that you cease to be a green card holder and a a, a taxpayer. It just says you know you you stop being you don't stop being a Canadian or American because you're a Canadian or American passport expired. Same thing with the green card, and people don't realize that a lot of misinformation and a huge amount of inadvertent noncompliance as a result. And mm -hmm. what I would add is that um, except for Mexico. None of the major Latin American countries have a tax treaty with the U.S. The implications of that for a green card holder are that there is much less uh, planning opportunity and flexibility because once you hold your green card for eight years, you're stuck being a long-term green card holder and you're potentially subject to the U.S. exit tax regime. 
However, if you are a resident of Mexico, then you can legitimately claim closer connection to Mexico. Um, yeah, you can file uh, for the eighth year. Um, you could file a, a treaty tiebreaker claim on Form 8833. And um, if you do that before the eighth year, then um, all future years really would um, you do it, let's say, in the third year that you're a green card holder. Um, those years in which you file a treaty tiebreaker claim, they don't count to the 8 of 15 test, which determines long-term green card status. So a lot of flexibility with Mexico, no flexibility with any of the other Latin American countries. Yeah, uh, you had mentioned this offline, and I was actually surprised to hear that, that Mexico is the only country in Latin America to have a uh, taxation treaty with the United States? In, as a generalization, that's a correct statement. Okay. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Um, I will also share with you that there are some very serious business tax considerations. Um, and, uh, for example, our guilty tax regime, which applies to active business income from a foreign corporation, there's all sorts of cross-crediting capabilities with the 70 countries that have tax treaties with the U.S., including Mexico. But you don't have those cross-crediting opportunities um, with any of the Latin American countries in which you might operate a business. And um, I think at some point you might see uh, a push for the United States to enter into tax treaties with um, with these Latin American countries. That would be a good way for the Latin American countries to attract foreign direct investment and limit tax evasion. But um, I don't work at the Treasury Department, and I don't know whether there's been any recent negotiations or discussions of that topic. Mm -hmm. And one other element uh, to think about in the advantage of, of, uh, of tax treaties, particularly Mexican tax treaties, when uh, the president, uh, AMLO, was elected a few years ago, we all of a sudden started to having uh, high net worth Mexican clients who were worried about taxation, uh, increased taxation, nationalization uh, issues, who started looking at a backup plan to to either leave or potentially leave the leave Mexico. And Mexico has a little quirk: non-residence in Mexico is not possible if you derive more than fifty percent of your income from Mexican source. However, if you move to a jurisdiction, which Mexico has a tax treaty with, like the United States, like Canada, like many European countries, mm -hmm. you can use the tiebreaker to sever your Mexican tax. So the, the point is that the devil is really in the details in a lot of this information. And that's why in particular, Mel makes a good living at this. <laughs> Hmm. What do you guys find, uh, speaking of making a good living, uh, <laughs> what do you guys find that the, what are the most common cases that you guys are dealing with? I'm sure you have a little bit of different specializations, but what do you see the most common or what are the common threads among the majority of clients? So I would say that increasingly I work with typically green card holders, but sometimes U.S. citizens who are contemplating renouncing their citizenship, abandoning their green card, 
And when we get into it, I ask the question, because when you file a Form 8854, which is an expatriation statement to be attached to your final 1040, you have to certify in writing that, and under pains and penalties of perjury, that you're fully U.S. tax compliant for the five years preceding your year of expatriation. And lo and behold, 90% of those who have some level of complexity, they can't comply. I'm working right now, and David knows the situation. He too is involved with a woman who uh, had lived in Mexico uh, from uh, the late 90s on, and now she lives in Canada, but she kept her green card. Um, she has married to a U.S. citizen. And so and, all and she's four, living in in Mexico or the States? Canada. She lives in British Columbia. She had lived in Mexico City. Okay. I thought you had to, there was like a physical presence requirement to maintain the green card. No, no. no so this is, an, this is the, a point that I'm making. There, you can lose, and it's really one of the things that Mel and I were talking about the other day, is a lot of tax and immigration lawyers are siloed. They know their area. They read their legislation. And, you know, I, I would describe myself as a, as a tax-savvy immigration advisor, and I'd describe Mel as a, as a immigration-savvy tax advisor. And we were talking about this particular little quirk, which is for immigration purposes, if you spend too much time outside of the United States, you could if you were identified and went through an administrative process, have your immigration status taken away from you for abandonment. But if you don't cross a border and you're not identified and you've been living in Mexico or in, in Whistler, like this particular client, um, she's never been challenged. Therefore, she still has the immigration status of resident alien. She'd never voluntarily relinquished it. It was never administratively taken from her. Mm. But it had, so from an immigration point of view, she's a taxpayer. But Mel will now describe, because she was in Mexico as opposed to Colombia or Argentina or Brazil and had a tax treaty position, there were some laws that came in in 2008. So I'll let Mel explain the particular devil in the detail here. So in 2008, the Internal Revenue Code, specifically Code Section 7701B6, was a new provision which said that you are deemed to cease, cease, stop being a U.S. tax resident in the year in which you first file a treaty election in 8833. I went back and I checked. So the first time this rule affected this particular individual was 2008, because that was the effective date of new code section 7701B6. You wouldn't know these things unless you do what David and I do for a living. Her regular, well-known accountants in the U.S., they were clueless. They didn't know. And I started asking a lot of questions. In fact, yesterday, in which I asked her, I said, gee, you had a liquidity event in 2004, and did you file a 5471 to tell the IRS that you would reduce your equity ownership in your two Mexican corporations from 50% to zero? And she said, no, I didn't even know about that. Well, as a lay person, you wouldn't know about it. You hope you've picked uh, competent professionals. This is a major regional accounting firm. And in fact, 
we're going to go back because she needs to come along now and do what's called a late filed form 8854. That's the expatriation statement and say, gee, I should have filed this form in 2008 and I didn't. And I'm going to submit a whole bunch of papers to make myself compliant from 2003 to 2007, the five tax years before 2008. You say to yourself, why would you ever want to do this? Here's the reason why. In 2008, the U.S. um, readjusted the U.S. exit tax. But for the first time, we, the United States, adopted an inheritance tax, which says... If you leave the U.S. and we classify you at the time you leave as a covered expatriate, then forever, for life, you are a covered expatriate, and the U.S. will impose a 40% inheritance tax on your U.S. heirs on all gifts and bequests they ever receive from you, whether you acquired the wealth after you left the U.S., whether you're dead 30 years, doesn't matter. It's pretty pernicious. Not a lot of advisors know about it. And the whole rationale here was to say to this woman who's in her 50s and has adult children, we don't want your U.S. citizen children to have to be subject to U.S. inheritance tax and pay a 40 percent tax and have the burden of filing a form 708 whenever it's issued by the IRS to um, to deal with this. We want you out from under that pernicious uh, system. And so by going back and cleansing her of the covered expatriate status, which she has, because she never certified that she was U.S. tax compliant for the five years before she is deemed to have expatriated. This is all highly technical. Most U.S. accountants don't know what the last three minutes of my uh, monologue are about, but we run into this all the time. And part of my practice is what I call remediation, entering into the streamlined foreign offshore procedures or the domestic program. And for this particular individual that has a lot of benefits, I said to her, look, you may have been mistaken, but if you were mistaken and you reasonably relied on your tax professional, that doesn't turn you into someone who's civilly or willfully um, uh non-compliant and does not mean that you recklessly disregarded the rules and regulations because you didn't know about them. How would you know about them? You don't know about the FBAR filing requirements for a treaty tiebreaker. Um, You know, this matter was just recently litigated uh, by a Mexican. And so there's a lot of confusion. Um, The U.S. imposes a very high uh, requirement for individuals not uh, compliant with our U.S. international information reporting. The good news, if you don't live in the U.S. full-time, the standard or the penalty bar is slightly lower because when you make this submission with a foreign submission, you don't have to self-assess yourself a 5% penalty. This individual, this lady, she's got a couple of American U.S. citizen children. They're going to be subject to a 5% self-assessed penalty because we're going to have to clean them up too, because they had a bank account, each of them up in Canada, that they never disclosed on a U.S. tax return. It's not a great outcome um, for um, someone who's not compliant, but it's relatively easy and painless to get compliant if you're willing to get with someone who understands the rules and you know you're willing to spend some money to make yourself U.S. tax compliant. 
Well, in Vance, you asked earlier kind of what are the bigger kind of groups of clients that we have. Mm -hmm. So we have Americans or green card holders who have, for whatever reasons, maybe they want to get out of the U.S. for particular reasons, or maybe they want to be somewhere else. So we'll call those American taxpayers abroad. Yep. The next group are those who are saying, I want to leave the U.S. tax system. I want to, I, I'm not quite as wealthy as Eduardo Saverin, but <clears throat> I'm relatively young. I don't, I, either the exit tax doesn't apply to me. I'm not a covered expatriate. I don't have more than $2 million in worldwide assets. I don't have, you know, more than 100 and, what is it now, 182000 average right. U, U.S. federal tax so, pay over the last case, five years. About um, yeah, and um, and I'm, I'm can certify my five years previously, so I'm going to leave. I don't have a deemed disposition, or even if I do, I have a relatively small amount of, of unrealized capital gain. Again, maybe a principal residence, which I'll, I'll sell and, and take that capital gain free, but I'll enjoy, you know, the remaining 30, 40 years of my life free of U.S. taxes. And so that's another part of our group. The third part are foreigners who are looking to come into the United States. So I have a lot of Latin American clients. I mentioned the Mexican clients earlier, but I have a lot of Latin American clients who say, I want to go to the U.S. I say, well, okay, maybe you want your children to go to the United States. Maybe you want they want to go to school or start careers, et cetera, et cetera. But do you want to bring the family wealth into the United States? And so, uh, no. Okay. So what there's, we either do some pre-immigration tax planning or we get the, the parents, the ones that have the wealth, we have, get them access to the United States. And we may do that with things like L1s, um, in particular non-immigrant, and they simply restrict the amount of time that they have in the United States. And if they're Mexican, they may make elections. Um, and those type of things. Another thing we often do is, is right now, there are a lot of commission kind of salespeople running around selling what are called EB-5s, which, which may be the right tool or it may not be. Um, but there are country quotas for that. And there is a process and a delay on that. And so we may get non-immigrant statuses to give people earlier access, starting school earlier on an F1, starting your business earlier. And then you start getting into which category you go into L1s versus mm -hmm. E1s and E2s. Yeah. And, and the key is that's different than a lot of people in this space is Mel and I are, are fee-based advisors. I tend to bill on a project basis because I'm producing a tangible residence or citizenship or I'm getting rid of a, a green card or, or I'm, I'm getting rid of U.S. citizenship. Mel tends to ha do it more on an hourly basis because it's much more difficult for him to to um, know at the outset exactly what's going to be involved. But the key is that our advice is not driven. We're not trying to sell you a product that may be inappropriate for you, and there may be a better, cheaper, faster way of doing it, but it doesn't pay a commission. We're always going to recommend what's in the client's best interest because we're, we're coming from an unconflicted um, position. So let me uh, pick up on what David just uh, was addressing from an immigration point of view, namely foreigners coming to the U.S. David and I are currently working with an entire family from South Africa 
and uh, the second generation, the children in their 30s, 40s, with children of their own, have come to the decision that they do not want to bring up their children in South Africa for reasons that are probably pretty well known. And the parents who had already uh, moved elsewhere out of South Africa said, well, gee, if you're all moving to the U.S., um, we don't want to be here in South Africa or elsewhere. Um, We want to come with you. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, the two major strategies that I have imparted to this family are one, to avoid U.S. estate tax, I set up many drop-off trusts. A drop-off trust is a trust that's set up before the individual becomes a U.S. domiciliary, and we'll come back to that definition um, again, because that's a different definition than am I a U.S. income tax resident, which is an objective test, whereas the domicile test is one of subjective intent. Are you physically present in the U.S. with intent to remain indefinitely? And so the idea is that the father, the patriarch, will probably set up a um, drop-off trust that he could contribute much of his property to. Now, the reason this has advantages is that so long as the father is not a U.S. domiciliary at the time of the transfer, there's no gift tax. As long as he's not transferring U.S. real estate or jewelry located in the U.S. or artwork in the U.S., if all he's transferring are um, intangibles, whether they be South African companies or other companies, um, even U.S. companies, there's no U.S. um, gift tax on that. And more importantly, there's no gift tax reporting. So there's this huge opportunity that's going to close when the patriarch moves to the U.S. Once he moves to the U.S. with no intent to leave the U.S., he's a U.S. domiciliary and like U.S. citizens, he'll be subject to, in 2023, a $12.92 million lifetime exemption. That doesn't apply until he crosses over from being non-domiciliary for U.S. transfer tax purposes to becoming a U.S. domiciliary for transfer tax purposes. In addition, the U.S. has at least two very pernicious, difficult, anti-deferral tax regimes. One, the CFC regime, guilty. The other, a PFIX. And my comment to the father and to his advisor was, before you move to the U.S., we're going to want to seriously consider making so-called check-the-box elections. Why do I want to make check-the-box elections before he moves to the U.S.? Because for U.S. tax purposes only, the filing of a check-the-box election form 8832 is a deemed liquidation only for U.S. tax purposes of that corporation. And thereafter, if the father owns 100% of the corporation, it's treated as a disregarded entity. If he's got other shareholders, it's treated as a U.S. partnership. In either event, it's a pass-through entity, and you cannot have PFIC or CFC regimes apply unless it's a corporation for U.S. tax purposes. Again, Most individuals don't know about this. Most U.S. tax advisors don't know about this. This is highly specialized, and this is why I advise clients before they move into the U.S. Hey guys, quick break from the episode to tell you about BitRefill. BitRefill allows you to shop online and in person without banks, converting your crypto directly into merchant balance. We're talking gift cards to Nike, Amazon, Apple, Airbnb, Hotels.com, and many more, all paid for with crypto. BitRefill offers more than 10,000 gift card options in 180 countries, including the USA, Canada, 
all across Latin America, including Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, Argentina, El Salvador, and many more. You can also apply the code MYLATINLIFE at checkout to get 10% back on your first purchase. Go to bitrefill.com for more information. Okay, so let me provide some insight for you on the um, individual that's contemplating leaving the U.S. Let's assume they're a U.S. citizen. Um, There is an opportunity, and I present it to the client as follows, that the client can have dual purpose and really set up a dual purpose trust if one of the objectives might be to move outside the U.S., and here's why. The U.S. has an exit tax. The U.S. has an inheritance tax. The concept behind the planning is to make a transfer up to the $12.92 million lifetime exemption in 2023 to a trust that has certain terms. And by making this transfer before the individual renounces, meaning before they become a covered expatriate, you accomplish two things. One, the 10 or $11 million that you put into the trust, let's say it's highly appreciated, non-traded ownership in a company, is not subject to exit tax, nor is the future appreciation subject to exit tax. You might name your children as the beneficiaries. And number two, any distributions made by the trustee to the U.S. citizen children is not subject to inheritance tax because the set law was not a covered expatriate at the time of funding the trust. The trust has to be set up in a year before the year of expatriation, before the year of the renunciation interview. But if you can get to it early enough, it's a very good way to minimize, in many cases, the U.S. exit tax. But it also takes into account the possibility the individual might remain a U.S. citizen at death. If that's the case, the assets are outside their U.S. gross estate, and they may have accomplished some intergenerational planning by allocating GST exemption when they fund the trust. Vance, the, the point I was going to make, and the, it was on, on the same one you're, you're doing, is immigration advisors, going back to this siloing, Mel has just laid out, he talked about guilty, FBAR, CFCs, control foreign corporations, foreign bank account reports, all of these various elements. Most U.S. immigration lawyers don't know that, let alone the immigration lawyer who is getting you, you know, your your residence permit in, in Paraguay or one of the other things. Mm-hmm. And and um, we actually wrote a column, which I suggested for, for Investment Migration Insider, uh, called American Exceptionalism, which is a little bit of a play, because I was telling Mel about these Americans going abroad, which is a relatively new phenomenon. We've had people from other parts of the world, Asia, South America, uh, South Africa, who've been immigrating for generations, whereas this concept for Americans to live abroad, digital nomads, you know, remote work, or them getting a little more adventurous in retiring or just choosing to live abroad is a relatively recent phenomenon. And so too many immigration lawyers, and we use the example of Portugal. Okay, everybody's going to Portugal. And when I described to Mel, okay, well, the first thing that if they're going to do, they have to go is in a golden visa, or do they going to go under what's called a D7, a retirement visa? Well, one requires a certain amount of time there. Ah, tax resident, Portugal, tax treaty, non-habitual residence, 
Otherwise, you get worldwide taxation. Well, okay, David, how do they do it? Well, they if they go the golden visa, they have to buy a piece of property or they have to buy a fund. Oh, okay. And mechanically, how they do that is they open up a bank account. They put deposits in it. The money may over, only be there for a few weeks while they buy the fund. Oh, foreign bank, FBAR, foreign bank account reports. If they buy a fund, is that a PFIC? There were so many issues. The, the idea for Americans living abroad or even more complex, Americans who are going to use this as an expatriation tax, it's a wonderful effective strategy, but if you do it wrong, it's a nightmare. And so what we wanted to do was first off alert people to, you know, there there's landmines in this field. Mm-hmm. The second is these are what the landmines are called. And, you know, there are sophisticated guides out there that can help you guide through. And so we do actually get a lot of referral work from people who are, you know, real estate agents or people who who are accepting the people in these destination countries. And, you know, oh, I'm going to, 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 to you know, Mexico and um, uh, Tulum and I'm going to go there and I'll be a property and I've got calls from the, the real estate agents going, well, my Canadian or American client is hesitant. They love the house. They're ready to buy, but they just don't know what the what the issues are going to be both in leaving Canada or the U.S. and in coming inbound into Mexico. And it's that gap and that ability for as, a, as an immigration advisor who knows the rules both in all these different jurisdictions, but can also understand how they impact uh, Canadians, Americans, Brits, Aussies, all these different jurisdictions, and who know local council to retain when it's appropriate to do so, which is quite often. And so it's that that ability to kind of, un, that all your advisors aren't siloed, but working together in concert to kind of lead you through the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really need like holistic international support because if you, let's just say you move to Italy or Poland as an American and you have one person doing your US stuff and one person doing your Polish stuff, that's, it's not, it's not gonna, it's definitely not gonna equal out, right? You almost need someone that's able to understand and control both processes and think of things holistically. You're absolutely correct. I'll make two comments. Number one, I have a very large, and as does David, network of lawyers in other jurisdictions. I'm admitted in the United States. I know some things about the laws of other countries, but I'm not going to give an opinion or advise a client to take a position vis-a-vis foreign law. They need a, an expert in that foreign law to guide them. Um, the other comment which I would make is an increasing trend which is that it's becoming increasingly hard for Americans to open up bank accounts in foreign countries. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason is because of FATCA and the foreign banks, so-called foreign financial institutions, are obligated to report back to the U.S. IRS about the bank activity for that client for the year. Um, I would also add that increasingly the Schwab's infidelities of the world are very sophisticated and they can tell whether or not you are calling them repeatedly from a foreign country. And if you are, 
you may be running afoul of certain securities law requirements, which says to Fidelity, you can market your products, Fidelity, to U.S. residents, but you can't market those U.S. SEC-approved securities to non-residents. You need to do that from a different platform. Mm -hmm. And so I've had clients whose cell phones have been noted as being in foreign countries, and the client might say, well, but I, I spend time with my child in the U.S. Um, a Fidelity or Schwab is getting very sophisticated and they'll know that you may have just given a child's address in the U.S., but you don't live there and you're really living in a foreign country and you really shouldn't be on the U.S. platform of securities, which are only designed and marketed by the Fidelity or Schwab to U.S. residents. And another point I just wanted to make since the rise of crypto and Mel was talking about FATCA and the the discovery of these Americans abroad, U.S. taxpayers and financial institutions turning them on. And with the rise of crypto, lots of people said, well, you know, they'll never know where I am. It's a perfect tax haven, uh, which I, I always kind of found hilarious because there, there is literally a ledger. Um, that notes that. So the question is that they know that that cryptocurrency exists. Uh, They know um, that it exists. They know that there are a lot of people who are non-compliant. They're just trying to, and they know it's held at, you know, Binance or Coinbase or wherever. Um, Or they know you bought something from, uh, uh, that you bought a cold wallet. They know all these things because they can figure them out. Oh, but they'll never be able to triangulate as to who owns it. Like, oh, okay. Um, Were you a customer at FTX? Yes. Well, guess what? You're a creditor and you're listed. And guess who's reading that, that list? The IRS. And oh, you forgot to check the box on your 1040 on the front page right upper hand corner that says, please tell us whether you have any cryptocurrencies. Oh, you're non-compliant. Did you invest in Circle? Uh, we just had, oh, okay, I didn't invest. I, I've got a, a cold wallet. Well, you had to get in and out of it somewhere. So we'll now go, and I told, you know, whatever my the exchange was, I was Mickey Mouse. Well, guess what? That All that stuff now with John Doe, all that information is now coming out. And so we are getting clients who uh, who thought that they um, were kind of under the radar who are discovering no your <laughs> your yeah. cloak of secrecy is gone and and again that's where getting them in they've got an opportunity to do some things before they're identified and so that's kind of going to be another major rush of clients because David's some pretty point. substantial yeah. monies there Absolutely. Yesterday, you may know this, yesterday the Securities and Exchange Commission filed a lawsuit against Coinbase, which is the largest crypto exchange in the U.S., alleging that they violated securities law by acting as an ex- as an exchange, a broker, and a clearing agency without registering with the SEC. We already know that the IRS considers uh, crypto as property, and there are certain laws and certain rules that apply for tax purposes. So there are going to be many... <laughs> lawsuits to uh, resolve some of these issues, but someone who is predominantly overweight crypto should not think that they're going to be out from under the U.S. regulatory system 
uh, as clearly the SEC and the IRS have crypto within their sites. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Very topical. Um, and by the way, this will probably come out a couple of weeks uh, after that uh, Coinbase thing just came out. So <laughs> hopefully we don't date ourselves too much. But um, after Binance too. Yeah. Yeah. Like same day. Coordinated mm-hmm. attack. It's yep. crazy. And also California also sued Coinbase for violating state securities laws. You know. So, so can I ask uh, about the American expatriation thing? So let's just say, and by the way, I'm a semi-anonymous character, uh, but let's just say I was American and I had either Canadian or European citizenship. And so I had, you know, a TRA passport. Uh, that, you know, was still able to get me into the States if I had to visit family or whatever. So should be good in terms of that. My understanding kind of just wait, I I haven't even looked into this super, super deep. So you guys will educate me. But it sounds like the rule of thumb is you don't want to get a deemed disposition and you want to basically renounce, um, you want to renounce prior to hitting a certain net worth level or a certain capital gains level. I, I think you said somewhere around the $2 million mark. So it's basically like once I'm getting close to 2 million bucks, that's probably a good time to renounce because you made some good money. You could pretty much retire on that in Latin America and just, you know, make some money uh, offshore or whatever to keep it going. But so wh- what's like the, the, the sweet spot of renunciation? Well, maybe well, I'll, I'll go ahead, David. Uh, so there's a couple of different considerations. So, uh, you have another citizenship if you're lucky enough have citizenship uh, through maybe descent or naturalization in one of the European countries. You don't necessarily have to go to that country. You've got 27 different choices. Um, you One of the first things in the best position you can have is to not be what Mel earlier referred to as a covered expatriate. And you are a covered expatriate if you if you you trigger any one of these three things you have more than 2 million in worldwide assets as of the day before you gave up that us citizenship or relinquished that green card or looking back at your federal tax payments for the previous 5 years add those all up divide by 5 and it's 192 did you say mel was this per year no at 5 year average Five-year average. So, so you could have a, had a great year three years ago and nothing last year. You look at the five-year okay. So that's average. basically people making like 500K or more and paying like Correct. 5%. And, and that number is indexed. Toward, and the other is the one that Mel w- was referring to, which is you also need to certify, and all of this is these three things are indicated on this form IRS 8854, you have to certify U.S. tax compliance for the five years prior to that day you renounce your citizenship okay. or really and, and how do you certify that? Like obviously you file returns, you hope you did it right. What is a certified what does certified mean in this context? Certified means that you're compliant with all US income tax, employment tax, and gift tax filing obligations for the five year period ending before the year of expatriation. Okay. And, and how does that work? How do you get the like compliance certificate or whatever? Well, what you do, it's an honor system, is that you file an 8854, and before it's filed, your advisors make real sure and go back through your last five years of tax returns, ask you a lot of questions, and really kick the tires to make sure that you can certify. 
In fact, in many cases, we have clients who come to us and they cannot initially certify, which is why we put them through a remediation, such as a streamlined uh, submission, because the streamlined submission, we hope, if it's full, accurate, and honest, will make the individual, and without being civilly, uh, without willfulness or reckless disregard of the rules, it will make the individual U.S. tax compliant. Once the person's U.S. tax compliant for the five preceding years through the remediation submission, they should be able to sign the disclosure statement. Now, this disclosure statement does ask you, have you made any significant transfers? Has there been a change in the assets and liabilities uh, to any significant degree in the last five years? So you have to tell the IRS whether or not you filed a gift tax return, you're going to have to tell them, let's say you lived over in a foreign country, you're no longer a U.S. Um, domiciliary for gift tax reasons, um, so you didn't have a 709 filing, you might still have to tell them in the statement that has to be attached to the uh, Form 8854. Now, if you have more than $2 million of net worth, and that's pretty easy to get above, then all of your worldwide appreciated assets are subject to one of uh, the most well-known exit tax regime, which is the mark-to-market exit tax regime. It's as if like you as sold, if you sold it, okay. As if you sold your worldwide appreciated assets. I am meeting tomorrow with an individual from a European country who inadvertently and on poor advice tried to use his green card when he re-entered the U.S. a second time and was forced by immigration to uh, sign an I-407. So tomorrow was supposed to be a discussion originally a couple months ago uh, when he was back in the States to talk about his pre-immigration planning. It's going to be all about compliance now because he's already he's already uh, expatriated. He already filed the I-407, did it somewhat uh, under pressure, um, but let's assume there's no way to reverse that. Which one is that? He's, Which the, the I four hundred seven? That's the relinquishment of green of green card status. Okay, and, and this is a, a classic example that Mel is going, where the immigration advisor was completely siloed from the tax advisor, and and one of the things that we had this eighty eight fifty four, when FATCA came in, and all of a sudden you had banks in in countries like Canada and the UK, et cetera, asking clients whether they were U.S. citizens or not, um, you had a, a number of people who said, well, that's unfair. Well, you know, <laughs> I once had a, 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 a former paramour who said, David, you look at the world like Mr. Spock, to which I aspire. I don't actually claim I do. But the idea is that try to look at the world as it is, not how you hope it would be or, you know, how you wish it would be. So whether you think it's fair or not, it's kind of irrelevant. That's the law. And so when FATCA came in and all of a sudden you had these Americans abroad who they, who they just, I'm going to renounce my citizenship, but I'm not going to file an 8854, to use a term I often saw, that I'm going to make the IRS pound sand. Well, guess what? They may not have been covered expatriates, but for the fact that they failed to certify that they were tax compliant because they refused to file an 8854. Mm. So they put themselves in a worse position by following advice of, you know, emotional advice 
mm-hmm. given by fellow outraged accidental Americans uh, that put them in a worse position. Mm. And they said, well, they'll never catch me. Well, one of the things is there was a lot of noncompliance with the 8854s. There was an outrageous case of a gentleman named Mr. Tinkoff, who had sold a bank for about a billion dollars, who claimed he had less than two million worldwide assets. He was caught and he paid a substantial price, actually, to avoid jail time. And it was identified um, by by. Tiga, by by the Treasury Inspector General, that this was an area of large noncompliance and specifically identified for IRS special attention. So a lot of people who thought that they were so clever a few years ago when they gave up their their green card by filing that I-407 or renounced their U.S. citizenship and they got a certificate of loss of nationality and they thought, I'm done now and, you know, my bank in whatever foreign country now, I signed something called a W-8 Ben saying I'm not a U.S. taxpayer uh-huh. and everything's great. Well, guess what? Like our crypto bros, they're sitting on a ticking time bomb because the IRS knows they're there. And they're and they're and they're, so they're going to come after the IRS is going to come after people that already renounced and be like you didn't do it oh, right absolutely absolutely so in the Tinkoff case just so you understand the magnitude Mr Tinkoff told the IRS on his 2013 form 8854 he had a net worth of three hundred thousand oh. dollars and he had total income less than two hundred six thousand dollars guess what the IRS told the Justice Department that he had a variety of British Virgin Island entities and more than 92 million shares in his company, making him the beneficial owner of about a billion dollars worth of the bank stock. And he consented, without, so he didn't have to go to jail, to um, to plea with the right. justice. So that's a big fish. So that, that kind of makes it worth it for them. But for the crypto bros or just someone that filed an F-bar wrong one time, and they didn't, you know what I mean? Like, are they really? Vance? Well, I'll say ahead, it to Mel. you. <laughs> you yep. can say the horror stories. The, while the IRS may be under-resourced and underutilized, and their databases may not be top-notch now, at some point, the databases and the cross-database with the U.S. Homeland Security will improve. And when they improve, the U.S., IRS will have Come the ability retroactively. Yeah, yeah they'll, they'll track you. Well, maybe there's maybe there's a database with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Right, right. I don't know. But once you're once you're out, you're out. Like other other than like filing wrong. Like if you did file it right and you did everything truly above board and you renounce, like you're go, you're good for life, right? Or is there any any if weird you, things if you've not, done it properly? Yeah, I'm going to give so you what, a weird thing. Let me give ahead, you a weird bro. thing. David and I have a client. This is how David and I met. A client worth about $800 million. We paid $160 million exit tax. Okay? That's a lot of money. And um, he's happy in Switzerland. But guess what? He's got this type of net worth. Do you think he's going to have exposure to U.S. equities? Sure. Well, if he owns the U.S. equities in his individual name, he'll have U.S estate tax problems if they're U.S. securities. So if he wants to own Microsoft or Apple, any U.S. company or startup company, he doesn't want it in his U.S. gross estate 
because he only has a $60,000 exemption. Plus, he's a covered expatriate. So he can't, he's, this guy is not married, so he can't leave the inheritance to his U.S. siblings or his parents, all of whom are U.S. citizens. So planning was required after we became a domiciliary of Switzerland. The planning goes on. There are ways to, so, you know, one of the ways to get around it is perhaps he sets up a BVI or Cayman holding company and puts all of his U.S. equities into the BVI or Cayman holding company. At that point, he owns foreign stock, stock in a BVI company, and there's no U.S. estate tax consequence. However, I've seen many situations dealing with it right now where individual dies unexpectedly owning U.S. securities. And we have to file a 706NA because they're not a U.S. Uh, citizen or U.S. domiciliary. And Vance, to go to your question, I get this a lot. Oh, I'm too small a fish. I'll never go after, they'll never go after me. Think of it from the IRS's or CRA or HMRC's point of view. And this will answer the, 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 the question as to why do these tax authorities audit you know, waiters and waitresses and all these poor people. Well, because it's much better to go after, the sweet spot is that there's money to get, but the person isn't going to be so wealthy that they're going to lawyer up and fight it. Right. And so I get get it like with AI and stuff, especially like they'll just start running some scripts and identifying people and stuff. And like, so you want to do it right. You want to do it right. So what what is the sweet spot for one advance, one comment, David and I know the case of Mr. Schwartzbaum. He was a wealthy Mm -hmm. uh, European, had a green card, didn't disclose on his F bars that he had all these uh, Swiss and foreign bank accounts. And right now, the U.S. Justice Department got an order from a judge in Florida, a federal district judge in Florida, allowing the Justice Department to go to Switzerland to foreclose on his Swiss assets because they believe and they demonstrated to the judge that he was trying to squirrel away and hide his Swiss assets to prevent collection of his FBAR penalty. The U.S. government will go after people in foreign countries and even after people die. Yeah, and if US you're, you know, banking, <laughs> you've got your 40,000, 100,000 in a bank, you know, in name foreign country. Well, that bank is also going to be what's called a qualified intermediary. They've signed an agreement with the Treasury Department. Like, infer- like if they're part of the CRS? No, no, that's part of FATCA. CRS is different. Okay. So this is qualified intermediary regime. FATCA would be like the QI on steroids. It was UBS. Uh, not living up to their FATCA agreement. That's that was the UBS tax evasion scandals of the of the the mid two thousands. But if you've got a bank, insert name of your local foreign bank, um, and they get a notice from the IRS saying, "Oh, we've identified Vance as a crypto bro that has this much, and we're now trying to track his assets. We've already frozen a, a wallet, maybe there, but we also noticed." That be, you know, that he's got forty thousand dollars in your bank. Do you think that you know that that a, that a bank that wouldn't hesitate to turn over a Mr. Tinkoff or a Mr. Schwartzbaum is going to pause before they turn over your money? 
because if they don't, guess what? They lose access for all of their customers to U.S. correspondent banking relationships and the U.S. equities market. I'm sorry, but you, there isn't a, a single customer that's that valuable to any bank to defy their QI agreement. And those that try to, such as the UBSs and the Credit Suisses and the HSBCs, mm -hmm. They really got nailed. No, and you no, got we get it. We get it. You can't hide it. from the U.S. We get you can't hide from the U.S. We yeah. get you probably shouldn't lie on any of these like expatriation things. So we get that. And we get that. I think one of the themes we wanted to to clarify is like it's if you're going to do this, it's probably good to do it early before before you trip any of these three rules. Right. Like, is there a sweet spot where people, yeah. I guess, should do it? And they'll probably even want to do it like a fair bit before they hit the 2 million mark because, you know, it takes like a year and a half to renounce or something anyway, right? No, well, I could do it in as quickly as six weeks. Oh, boom. But Vance, if the individual comes to me and said, Mel, I'd like the optionality of considering in six or seven years the possibility of renouncing, I can set up a trust now, 2023, and we can fund it. And so long as it meets certain requirements, that it could be an expatriation trust that they do decide to expatriate, but they might just set it up because they don't want to pay a state tax on a highly appreciating asset if they die as a U.S. citizen. We set it up today and they come along in 2029, some six years later and say, you know what? I think I'm going forward and expatriating 2029. I got to file a Form 8854. Lo and behold, I don't have to disclose that I made the transfer to that trust because it's more than five years before my year of expatriation. The nice. concept is if you, can, if, if you can get to it five years ahead of time, great. In most situations, no. People, most individuals who decide to expatriate can't plan ahead more than five years. Some can't even plan ahead more than a year. So in most cases, you're going to be disclosing to the IRS on your attachment to Form 8854, yes, in fact, I did make a transfer to this trust, and um, it's an expatriation trust, and U.S. IRS, you're not allowed to impose exit tax, and even though the beneficiaries are U.S. heirs, there's no inheritance tax. And, and Vance, to answer your question on the sweet spot, so the best situation is that you're not a covered expatriate. You're not worth more than $2 million. You haven't got the average tax paid over the last five years. And, and you're, you have the ability to certify and you do certify your tax compliance. That's the best place. Sometimes, hey, I'm a little over, but I've got a spouse and there's some gifting opportunities that allow you to reduce your net worth. But you have to do that very carefully and properly so that you don't trigger, so that you have the proper exemptions and you can use your unified credit. So that's the best case scenario. But even if you are a covered expatriate, mm -hmm. like, for example, the, 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 the very wealthy client we talked about, um, you do have a deemed disposition. Okay, well, do you have any, any unrealized capital gain? No. Well, then it's really a non-event. And you actually, not, you actually get an exemption, which, Mel, give me the, the current because uh, this is for inflation index. 822000 822000 exemption. So you don't pay on the first, you know, 822. Now you will pay 23.8% federal, and if there's state applicable, there's state tax on everything above that. Okay. But then you get to enjoy the, the, the 
increase in value of those shares or the income of those free of tax from that point on. So that client that we did, although he paid an enormous amount of tax, he, like Eduardo Saverin, did this prior to IPO on some founder shares. So he had discounting opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. So he wasn't playing what Bloomberg said it was worth the day after the IPO. He was paying on pre-IPO fair market values. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. If for that person who doesn't have much of an exit tax and the 2801, which is the inheritance tax, well, that only applies if you're leaving it to U.S. person, you're leaving gifts or bequest to U.S. person heirs. Well, if you're marrying a Brazilian, you're no longer an American and you have, you know, little vances, um, they're not U.S. persons. So the, the inheritance tax is not going to be an issue for them. So you have to kind of understand where the person is in life, what their future is, mm -hmm. what the inheritance tax issues are, how's their net worth. One of the things, you know, Mel and I oftentimes about is if you're too wealthy, it gets, it's, it's too much. This client was exceptional. We usually don't have clients that are worth that much money expatriating. Why? Because the amount of tax that they do Just owe, even at 283. Yeah, you correct. Have cash. So, you have to have the cash. So a couple of points, Vance, which I want to emphasize. It makes a big difference whether you expatriate with $5 million of cash in the bank as your only asset or $5 million of appreciated worldwide assets. Right. Here's the answer. It's worldwide. It's worldwide. So if you worldwide. have foreign real estate, that's... Worldwide. Here's, here's the issue. Okay. If I have a $5 million net worth and it's all in one bank account and I have it's in cash, I have no exit tax. However, I have more than a $5 million net, more than a $2 million net worth. Therefore, I'm a covered expatriate for life. Ah, so that means if I then self-create or inherit another $100 million outside the U.S. and I have U.S. citizen heirs, U.S. resident heirs, there's an inheritance tax because I had over $2 million on the day I expatriated, having nothing at all to do with not paying an exit tax. That's point number one. Damn. Point number two. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's since 2008. Not a lot of people know about it. Number two, if I move outside the U.S. but retain my green card, I am an income tax resident because I'm subject to worldwide tax on um, as a green card holder, but I am probably not a domiciliary of the U.S. If I have no plans to go back, I can make the subjective uh, determination, hopefully, that I am no longer a U.S. domiciliary, and therefore I can make unlimited amounts of gifts of intangibles like stock to anyone to maybe get myself below $2 million for when I do decide to turn in my green card. Okay. So all, there's, all there's lots of planning opportunities here. And again, you want to, before you do anything, um, whether, you know, whether, for example, if you're that foreigner American, Boris Johnson, you know, who went ahead and, oh, he sold his UK property. The UK doesn't uh, tax on principal residence, but guess what? He was born in the United States. He's a U.S. citizen. The U.S. says, thank you very much. You disposed of an asset. You had a realization of capital gain of X. We want our, our chunk. And because there was no tax paid in the U.K. in that case, 
Great. Then we don't have to worry about, you know, an offsetting foreign tax credit. Thank you very much. A tax treaty is where two countries are trying to fight fight over who gets it. The same same amount. Yeah. And so for for Canada can actually be a tax haven for Americans or Brits. Why? It doesn't have gift tax. It doesn't have an estate tax. It's a great place to die. And if you, through pre-immigration tax planning, can um, reduce the impact, uh, the amount of, of taxable income or capital gain exposed to, um, to the Canadian tax system, you can live in, you know, a, a, a very nice country. And this is one of the points I also want to make. If you're going to leave Canada or the U.S., you're going to jump out of that, their tax pot. You want to make sure you don't jump into some other jurisdiction's tax fire. So you, you want to do planning both on extricating yourself from your current tax regime, either temporarily or permanently, but you want to make sure that you also shelter yourself from the tax system you're you're about to become subject to. Okay. Do you want to elaborate on that like a little bit? What how does how would sure. say the Canada thing work or or maybe a different example you had in mind? So so if you're an American, we've got Americans right now who are sitting there saying, "Okay, well, I'm worried about taxation or I'm worried about certain situations in the United States. I want to get a kind of a go bag option and Canada's great. I can get a place there, cost of living, it's, it's very familiar to me. I can stay in the same time zone, speaks English um, and, and, and things. So I'm, I'm going to go to Canada. Okay, so we'll get you a work permit, which we may be able to do a variety of ways, including under what in Canada they call Kuzma, in the U.S. it's USMCA, that, that what used to be called NAFTA, or intercorporate transfers, other ways. We can get you permanent residence, again, a variety of pathways to that status. But unlike the United States, Canada does not say you're a taxpayer simply because you've got the Canadian equivalent of a green card. Canada says you are a taxpayer if you sojourn, spend 183 days plus in Canada, or you have centralized your mode of living in Canada. Well, again, if you've simply got a work permit and even permanent residence as kind of, you know, a go bag option, uh, you can come into Canada. But let's say that you decide I'm going to move into Canada. I'm going to spend more than six months there, etc. You can do some tax planning to limit. It's effectively like if for Americans, what they would think of as an estate freeze that would limit the amount of tax that they have exposed to the Canadian tax system. And so if you think of the equation of tax, and this is, I'm, my apologies, I'm going to dissuade people of President Biden's recent statements, but he talked about, oh, billionaires don't pay the same you know, rate of tax of firefighters and nurses. Okay, we'll, we'll talk, I won't bother going out to 3%, but whether that's an accurate calculation, but the tax equation, I'm going to throw one equation at your audience, mm -hmm. X times Y equals Z, if you're Canadian, or Z. So X is the amount of taxable income, Y is the rate, but but Z is the most important. That's the amount of tax you're going to pay. We think, well, Canada is a high-tax country. Yes, but if you've reduced X, doesn't matter what Y is, Z is still going to be low. So zero times an even 99.9% .9 rate is still $0 paid. Oh, 
that's all my tax planning. Oh, Canada doesn't have a gift tax. Oh, Canada doesn't have an estate tax. Oh, Canada doesn't have a wealth tax. So if you're, you're arbitraging the different jurisdictions, and that's the point, is you want to enjoy the tax savings of the jurisdiction you're leaving. And if you can, through tax treaties or territorial tax or not becoming tax resident, you want to make sure you don't, you know, increase your global tax burden. Vance, I just want to emphasize the point I made earlier, how critical it is to have proper representation in both jurisdictions. So David's point about doing an estate freeze in Canada, yeah, that will work in Canada. That will limit the uh, the tax at death. But if you're still an American, that violates Code Section 2701. We don't allow estate freezes anymore. So if you're still a U.S. citizen, you got a problem. On the other hand, if you're going to give up your U.S. citizenship and move to Canada, different story. So every situation is different, but it just speaks to the critical importance of getting proper representation in each applicable jurisdiction. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Quick break from the podcast to tell you about Language Blend, the best new way to learn Spanish. Language Blend was co-founded by Jake Nomada, friend of the podcast, decade of experience in Latin America. And Jake and his team, they put everything into this program that they wish they had in terms of how to level up quickly with your Spanish language skills. Because the faster that you can get conversationally fluent in Spanish, the better the experience that you're going to have in Latin America. So go to languageblend.com for more information. I did have one or two things that I wanted to make sure uh, I asked you guys about in this episode. Um, First one is Accidental Americans. We actually talked a bit about this on the John Richardson one, but I wanted to get your take on it as well, because I think it is a pretty relevant issue, especially because so much of our audience is American. And then obviously with the, the Latin American angle, Latin American angle, they're they're possibly interested in having their children be born abroad and have them be born in Mexico or Brazil or, or whatever it is, right? And so I guess my question is like, in your professional opinion, is that child born in Mexico? Obviously, I guess they're sort of an accidental American. Are they considered a U.S. person or do they have to make some sort of election to say at some point in their life to say like, hey, I do want to, you know, be registered in the CRBA, you know, report of birth abroad or something like that to, to sort of like officially um, uh, take their, uh, you know what I mean? To accept their American citizen status. They are under us citizenship law, either they're citizens or not citizens and from their first breath. So if they're born in the United States, barring them being diplomats, they are going to be us citizens, right? If they are born to parents who, who are an American who also has certain physical presence requirements, they need to have been living in the United States for certain periods of time, they are an American. Simply filing a a registration of birth abroad or applying for a U.S. passport is simply telling the American government about an existing state of fact. So whether they are U.S. citizens or not 
is a factual question depending on the situation. Okay. And if they are a, a, a U.S. citizen, then they are also under the I, I, IRC, the, the, the code, they are a U.S. person for tax purposes. And Where it gets trickier is if you are a green card holder, and the green card test is a U.S. person, that then you, <laughs> you guys are love the a green U.S. Card taxpayer. Stuff. You guys love the green card stuff. Well, because it's the trickiest and where the most misinformation is. Yeah. So the accidental Americans, again, going back to my Mr. Spock position, having grown up in Windsor, where many people I knew were born in the United States or born to U.S. citizens. And when... Um, and I would tell them, look, you're a U.S. taxpayer. And I would hear, oh, David, you know, I've been going to the United States for 40 years and I've never filed U.S. In fact, I get U.S. Social Security. What happened with the QI and FATCA was they didn't suddenly make you subject to tax. What that did, you've always been subject to the tax. What it did was their ability to find you and their ability to collect greatly increased. Mm. And that's where people say, oh, my God. You know, and financial institutions are asking me questions they never asked before. You know, blame it on President Obama. Well, no, you have to look back to the time of the U.S. Civil War to see where there was citizenship-based taxation. Whether that was fair or not, um, it's what the law is. And the, okay. the only thing that really changed was their ability to find you and their ability to collect. And that may be through the QI regime. That may be through mutual collection clauses. That may be through What's the QI fact stand for again? Sorry to interrupt. Qualified intermediary. Qualified intermediary. Okay, cool. Sorry, continue. Sorry, went into nomenclature there. And so um, I remember sitting in around 2001, uh, before the UBS bank scandals and all, all this, and I was on a panel and... Um, I was about second or third to speak, so I thought, well, it's kind of rude if I yawn while the other speaker is talking. So I had a little too much coffee, you know, so I was pretty tuned in. And the first speaker was a gentleman who said, he was a banking lawyer, and he said, all of our clients rushed and signed these enormous qualified intermediary regime um, agreements with the U.S. Treasury. Why did they rush to sign it? Because otherwise, Treasury is going to cut them off from the U.S. markets and U.S. correspondent bankings. And I've had a year now to read it, and let me tell you what you, what your your banking bank financial institution has agreed to do. And he started laying out kind of you know to to report, withhold, and remit on U.S. person clients. And I thought, oh gee, all of my parents' bridge and golf buddies who would tell me, oh David, I've been going for forty years, they're all going to be found out. I don't know when. I don't know exactly how. I couldn't predict Brad Birkenfeld and UBS, but I knew it was going to happen. And sure enough, 2005, 2006, it all blew up. So prior to that point, I would be talking to clients about, well, if you want to properly leave the U.S. tax system, you need to go through, get another citizenship and go through this expatriation and stuff. And they'd go, well, now, David, I, I met some banker, Swiss banker at, you know, Art Basel, Miami. I'm just going to fly to Switzerland and put it there. And it worked, that evasion technique, until the day it no longer worked. I was going to add that there are two exceptions to covered expatriate status. Yes. So assuming 
that the individual can certify to full U.S. tax compliance for the five-year period beforehand, and that that will not trigger being classified as a covered expatriate, there are a couple of exceptions. And these exceptions will be applied basically where the individual has got more than a $2 million net worth or their net average tax liability over the prior five years exceeds the $190,000 threshold, the individual might be able to fall within one of two exceptions to covered expatriate status. Number one, you're a dual citizen at birth. You became a U.S. citizen at birth. One of your parents, your parents who were married was a U.S. citizen. You also became a citizen of another country at birth. Let's say you were born to a U.K., Brit in London, then you're probably also a UK citizen at birth. Mm-hmm. On your expatriation day, you continue to be a citizen of that other country, right. UK. You, uh, on your expatriation day, you, can, you continue to be taxed as a resident of the UK. And on your expatriation date, you are not US resident for more than 10 of the last 15 years that ends with the year of you expatriated. So that's one way to fall outside the definition of a covered expatriate, but assuming that you can certify. The second way, and one that David and I have had, is when you are become age of majority in the U.S., age 18, there's a six-month window. Because the second exception, which is called the relinquishment of citizenship before age 18 and a half, with a minor's exception, says that you relinquish your U.S. citizenship before 18 and a half, so i.e. between 18 and 18 and a half, and you're not a U.S. resident for more than 10 years before the date of relinquishment. By doing this, you're not going to be subject, you're going to not going to be a covered expatriate. Again, it's limited, and certainly on the dual citizen requirement, it's a little tricky. You can't be living in a third country because that will screw it up. So you got to go through the requirements to see whether the individual is eligible. And so the, what happened when when FATCA came in, all of a sudden you had, you know, then they would ask the further questions. Can we please see some identification? Now, if you were born in Wyoming, that's going to be a dead giveaway. So that was the first round of people that were going through. But then as the 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 United States got more sophisticated in asking their QIs, you need to ask further questions. That is a continually evolving thing where these people are being uncovered. So those who think, well, gee, you know, they're never going to figure out that, well, guess what? You know, there there's data mining, et cetera. There's exchange of information. So at some point, the banks are going to, going to and are already being told, particularly with the Canadian banks, because they were much more sophisticated and early on in, in their, their KYC and their compliance on this end, because there are so many Americans in Canada, that they're asking those questions, saying, okay, I know previously you, you said you weren't a U.S. person, which meant you signed a form called a W-8-BEN. But, you know, when... We we the the our data mining showed that you are the and you know with ancestry.com she was born in the United States and we've done this matching and all those things. So now we need to know we need your long form birth certificate. Oh of the parents. Oh yes. And now our presumption is that you are a US person. So we're gonna you, you either sign the W-9, 
which is I'm a U.S. person, report, withhold, remit, or we're going to close your account. And when you walk down the street, every other bank, you're going to have the same thing. And oh, we also notice that you've got mutual funds, which are PFIX, you know, passive foreign investments. Um, you know, you've got all of these questions. So this idea, like the people I grew up with, which is, oh, they'll never find me. Well, guess what? You're, so your choice really is you can rely on, oh, happen. I hope they never find me. Or I'm going to die. Do you really want to pass this problem on to your children and your grandchildren? Um, or, gee, why don't I <laughs> get compliant and properly leave? And what does that mean? Well, okay, yeah, I have more than $2 million, but I don't really have any, you know, much in the, un I don't have more than this 800000 in in an uh, unrealized capital, this is U.S., an unrealized capital gain. So it's kind of a non-event. And, oh, I've done some planning beforehand so that I have nullified the, the 2801 question. Or my heirs, my who are my U.S. children who are 16, I'm mm -hmm. going to say, well, you can choose to get your million dollars and you'll get it all if you renounce your citizenship between 18 and and 18 and a half, or you can get it when you're 20 as a U.S. citizen and you are going to have to pay 40% to the IRS. Thank you very much. And one of the things you mentioned earlier about kind of a year and a half to expatriate. Jesus. And, and so one of my big jobs and, and the client that we had, for example, he expatriated during COVID. During COVID, it was very difficult to get appointments because a lot of offices were closed. Well, one of the things I did for this particular gentleman was get him New Zealand residence. Well, the American embassy in Auckland never closed because of COVID. So we were, but the problem was most people couldn't get into New Zealand. He could because he had a residence permit. So we in. got him in yeah. and he expatriated yeah. during COVID. Well, since that time, you're, you're quite right. If you're a Canadian and you go on and say, okay, I want to, you know, I'll go on to the, the website. And even if I'm willing to travel within Canada, we're really looking at between 12 and 18 months before I can get an appointment in Toronto or Vancouver or, or Calgary, et cetera. Yes, but you're a U.S. citizen. You have the right to go to U.S. citizen services at US, any U.S. mission abroad that deals with this. And so just like if you're an American traveling in Japan on a vacation That's and good. you lose your passport, you can certainly go to the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo and get a replacement passport. Well, that's a function of U.S. citizen services. Likewise, you can renounce. Now, try to get the locally engaged person. So we do a lot of flying clients all over the world in order to have them expatriate by particular times. Maybe they've got a liquidity event. Maybe they're coming up to, you know, they want to do it in by a particular year end. Maybe they just want to sever this and be done with it. So that's a lot of the work that I, that I do is constantly monitoring mm -hmm. and kind of flying clients all over the world to expatriate, you know, sooner rather than later. It constantly changes. The, the fastest cool. one Where, right the now fastest is on average? about six weeks. The problem is as soon as you, as the knowledge comes out that, you know, 
uh, certain office it gets busy, they fill up. And then, so we're, we're constantly kind of, it's a moving target. Well, it's, it's not a question of easy. You have to remember that an, an American renouncing their citizenship is exercising a right. They're not asking for permission to expatriate. And another thing that a lot of people, well, you know, but I want to be able to go back to the United States and visit. I've been doing this for over three decades. And people talk about something called the Reed Amendment, which was something that, that was supposedly brought in in, in in 1996 in major immigration reform, but never, it was tried to apply it two times in the interim time, both times it was refused. So it's really a non-issue. The question really becomes from a timing point of view, because you have to give up your U.S. citizenship outside of the United States. If you want to come back in, well, what passport are you carrying? Are you carrying a Canadian? Doesn't need a visa. Bermudian? Doesn't need a visa. Um, are you carrying a passport of a country that's on the U.S. visa waiver list? Well, you may have to register for ESTA, but you don't need a visa. Oh, did you go and buy a Caribbean passport that needs a visa? Well, you have to apply for a visa. Now that's a, diff kettle, a different kettle of fish. I mean, we're getting very technical, and, and Mel and I actually ended up writing, and you can find them on the IMI website or on our websites, links to, we did a series of articles for Americans living abroad, all of the compliance that we've been talking about. Americans contemplating expatriation, all of the tax immigration issues, all of these issues. So that's a very good primer. It doesn't, it's not a how-to map. Oh, great. I'll, I'll download this and save a whole bunch of money. No, what it does is identifies the issues and tells you, oh, here's the benefits if it's done properly. But, you know, then, then you know, you retain proper advisors to go through and who are looking at it from both an immigration and a tax point of view, who are looking at it very holistically so that you don't have a siloed, because we, we've mentioned two or three kind of disasters when they're siloed. Hey guys, quick interruption to tell you about BitRefill. BitRefill is the best way to convert your crypto into gift card balances. These are gift cards that you can spend at Hotels.com, Airbnb, Nike, and many more. You may remember Joel Valenzuela, previous podcast guest. He's been living on crypto exclusively since 2015, and he's a big consumer of BitRefill. And so I asked Joel, I said, what do you like most about BitRefill? He said that he likes the instant delivery, the precise amount so that you don't have to juggle a lot of gift cards. And he loves the global selection. Nobody else has this much selection of gift cards, over 10,000 gift card options across hundreds of countries. Go to bitrefill.com to sign up. And you can also use the code MyLatinLife for 10% back off your first purchase. Go to bitrefill.com for more information. Well, I was going to mention that it's rather ironic that this uh, wealthy individual for whom David got New Zealand residency, he, um, we discovered after the fact that in order to get the residency, he had to have a New Zealand bank account, FBAR, and he also had to make an investment in a New Zealand fund that others invested in, PFIC. And so we, before he expatriated, we had to do a major streamline uh, procedure submission 
to rectify not only his New Zealand issue, but he also had gotten a uh, originally a passport in Malta, made an investment in a Maltese government bond fund, and some of the technical requirements of the PFIC rules were not adhered to. So, um, and look, the accountants are top-notch accountants, but they don't do this all day, and they don't do it every day, and they're not international experts, and mistakes happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those those definitely good stuff regarding uh, accidental Americans and renouncing citizenship. Um, one or two more things that I want to touch upon, different, different subjects. We can do short answers if you want. Um, when you move abroad as an American, one good thing about the U.S. financial system is it's so robust that you could technically just leave all your finances in the U.S. while living abroad. So you could, you know, and this is maybe a little bit more tough in Europe, but you could very feasibly like live in uh, Mexico or Panama or, or a territorial tax country, maybe Dubai or something, and leave all your money in the States. You know, you keep contributing to, to your 401k. Um, I don't know, you just keep all your money in American banks, so forth and so on, majority US assets. And that way you could probably cut down on a lot of the paperwork of, you know, like foreign asset compliance and, and this and that. Is that something that you recommend or what are some of the pitfalls of doing that? Is that a good strategy, bad strategy, kind of keep you out of the, you know, well, d- double double tax treaties and all that crazy stuff? Well, uh, yeah, I think from a simplistic point of view, it does simplify your life. But I will give you the reaction of this wealthy individual who's now a Swiss tax resident. And his attitude is he wants the U.S. and especially the IRS in his mirror. He doesn't want to have anything to do with U.S. tax compliance. And so um, he doesn't want U.S. assets. He doesn't want U.S. assets in his name. Um, and so we're going to great lengths to make sure that he does not have any U.S. assets in his name. And he's a Swiss tax resident. Okay. And the that's the person that's what, keeping their American citizenship, but they're just no, sort of simplified. Yeah. Renounced. But, but that's a renounced. Yeah, that's renounced. But let's just say you're keeping American citizenship. You're not ready to uh, pull well, the trigger yeah. on that. Would you, I guess, is the idea to kind of do one or the other and just not have mm-hmm. some crazy commingling of assets? Well, I, I think you got to decide what you're going to have to have a foreign bank account. I mean, right. you know, with clients in New Zealand, they've got New Zealand bank accounts because that's where they live. Um, and I think you just have to say to the person, look, as long as you or Canada or Mexico, as long as you're going to disclose it on an F bar. And if you have any foreign financial uh, accounts other than real estate, you got to file a form 8938 with the IRS. As long as you're going to be U.S. compliant, you have a very good professional who understands the rules, you're fine. You, you may need a few assets outside the U.S. You may have the bulk of your assets in the U.S., but still, you may need some assets in your local jurisdiction. The other issue is one Mel mentioned earlier, which is your, your bank accounts are fine, but your brokerage account, um, that fidelity or you know morgan or whomever you're dealing with um they have certain rules relating to they're dealing with offering securities to u.s residents and uh, and offering securities to non-residents even if they're u.s citizens Mm -hmm. so there may you may need to even if you like a particular firm they they may need to 
re-platform you and have you serviced by one of their foreign branches, or you may need to put move that brokerage account only because the the financial institution which is handling your brokerage account needs to remain compliant yeah, yeah. or not. Yeah, and some are more some are more friendly to people yeah. to like retirees abroad yeah. and stuff than others. Yeah. Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan have people in New York whose job it is to make sure that a wealthy person who's residing outside the U.S. is on the proper platform. The Those companies, Fidelity, Schwab, I presume, but don't know. But I know people at um, Goldman Sachs and at J.P. Morgan whose job it is to make sure that their clientele is on the proper platform from a securities law perspective in the U.S. Okay. And then so just to clarify, so let's just say you're not going to renounce you're proud to be American, Boston Tea Party and all that stuff, but you enjoy living abroad. Should people, is the play to kind of leave all your money more or less in the States and just kind of keep everything US reporting? Maybe a little checking account abroad, but not not too much going on. Maybe you have a house, not too much going on. Or, w- or would it be to go fully the other direction and maybe have all your assets offshore and stuff? And so you don't really have US stuff. So you're not really doing weird commingling but you're just sort of all your reporting is just like f- sort of foreign asset reporting, foreign capital gains reporting. Is it is one or the other potentially better? Well, we, we, I, I would say, Vance, that a person might start off with the notion that they're going to only have a checking account and a residence outside of uh, the U.S. But look, the more time that they spend in the other country and if they're making investments, what's the possibility they might uh, strike up a conversation, decide to invest in a private equity investment in a foreign country. It's pretty good. So um, I don't know that you can just make it a black and white determination. Unfortunately, it depends. And and the other factor that clients take into account is some clients are nervous about the U.S. banking system generally. And just as as a diversification, want to have accounts outside of the United States. And that's fine. Perfectly legal. So long as you make the proper disclosure of of the account on your F bar, so long as if you have tax that needs to be paid, whether that is, you know, taxable income coming from this or a disposition to capital gain or PFIC reporting, it's fine to have it and, 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 and to do it. And you may find from a practical viewpoint, well, you know, my... My landlord in my property I'm renting in Bogota just wants to, you know, wants me to pay from checks from this local bank or, you know, this local app. Um, And so you may be forced from a lifestyle point of view to have, but, and I've got clients who sit there and say, well, okay, I love TransferWise. I like Revolt. It works really well for me. It's multi-currency. It's easy to do transfers. I don't have fees. I get great exchange rates. And that's great. But that's, again, a form bank account report. It's not that it's a big deal. And, you know, you you have a, a specialized accountant who knows this stuff. You're not going to get it done in a mall by H&R Block and you don't want to pay, you know, the the fees of a huge one, but you need to have an accountant that is appropriate for the sophistication of your life. If you start getting into foreign investments, if you start getting into, you know, 
owning foreign corporations, control foreign corporations, if you get into, you know, subject to guilty tax um, and all those things, you're going to need more sophisticated people. But so it's a weighing of what's the opportunity versus what's the compliance hassle and cost. And Vance, I would also add that I think it makes a big difference whether you're going to go to Europe where you'll be on the euro and you might make an investment in euro where I think the risk of devaluation of the euro is relatively comparable to the US. On the other hand, if you move to a Latin American country, what's the risk of devaluation if you move to Argentina? Look what that country's been through in the way of devaluation of its currency. Mm-hmm. Look at Turkey. Yeah, we in the John Richardson episode, we definitely talked about how like foreign, uh, like private private equity investments and foreign corporations or you know whatever foreign startups and stuff can be uh, quite a nightmare from a reporting perspective. Yeah, the problem is the rule that once a PFIC, always a PFIC. And if I make an investment in a startup uh, Brazilian company that has no income yet, that's probably a PFIC because the majority of its assets are liquid and not producing active income. And even though it goes on to have active income, it's once a PFIC, always a PFIC. There are problems. Mm -hmm. Um, Last question. This one's, well... I, as a as a podcast host, I should never say the last question, but kind of this is weirdly out of order, but I wanted to squeeze it in for David. So as a Canadian who wants to switch to uh, non-tax resident status, have you noticed that it, it might be easier to switch to like a, a more highly regarded country? Like if you want to switch your tax residency to the States, um, I've, I've found that that's like easy peasy on your kind of final Canadian tax return. But if you're trying to switch it to something that's more of like a gray or blacklist country, like, a, you know, the, the Panamas, Paraguays, Caymans, Barbados and stuff of the world, does, does that have a lot of different implications around it than say, if you were just going to the USA or the UK? So for Canada, as I, as I said, uh, I oftentimes get this question from people immigrating to Canada, you know, when do I become tax resident? Unlike the U.S., it's not, you know, when you get citizenship or when you get permanent residence in Canada, which is Canadian green card equivalent. Um, It's that sojourning, spending 183 days. It is that um, centralized. So when when do we become centralized? And the best analogy I've ever heard is when does water become soup? So Canada says, well, we look at three major vegetables. You know, do you have a home available to you in Canada? that's always available to you in Canada. Do you have a spouse that is resident right, substantial in Substantial ties. Yeah. Do you have children, dependent children who are resident in Canada? Canada says, well, if you have two of the three of those, we're going to start with the position that you have, that water has become soup. And then we'll look at all kinds of secondary things, uh, other indicia of residence. Do you have bank accounts? Do you have club memberships? Do you have you know, ski equipment? All those other things. Now, the question you're asked is, how do I turn soup back into water? And there is a form called NR73 for National Revenue 73. And, there, and a lot of accountants will say, well, I'm going to file that. And I'm going to get CRA's permission that I've left. As I said, I've left three times. I've never filed an NR73. 
definitely Google it, definitely look at it because it then goes in, in to the things you want to get rid of. And I'm kind of a belt and suspenders guy, so I got rid of everything. <laughs> um, and so you can go through that, but I you don't need to yeah, go so you reduce your ties, you reduce your ties. Is that the only mm-hmm. aspect of it? Or is there some aspect where they say well, like, dude, you can't move to Cayman or something? I don't no, know. No. So, so the question, so what they look at is when you centralize your mode of living, they look at, have you moved to a jurisdiction, whether that is Pitcairn Island or the United States or the UK or Cayman? That's not the question. If you got on a boat and started sailing around in the open seas, Canada says, well, you're still centralized here because you haven't centralized elsewhere. So it's not that it is a particular type of jurisdiction. It is whether you have established in a jurisdiction. And so let's say you do all this and you move in October. You will file the following by April 30th of the following year. You'll file a stump year from January 1st to September 30th. Um, and that'll be it. You have, you don't have to, and I would recommend you don't file an NR 73 and you leave. Well, the next April, Canada is going to go, well, we used to get a good check from Vance, whatever happened to him. And again, if you, if you keep and the big decision for Canadians is, do I keep my RSP or do I not? I always chose to collapse it, pay the tax, take the net net amount, and and sever that tie. Other people may say, "Well, I want to keep it," which means that you have certain filings with the with CRA. Um, so it doesn't matter kind of where you go. You're going to try to take. So don't ask for permission. Take a position. Mm. Um, and, and the other thing is the the problem with the with the. NR73, as people will see when we read it, is you're disclosing all the all the future, all the international locations for your assets. Well, why give CRA a, a treasure map? Um, you don't need to. Why would you do that? Take the position. And if they are going to challenge you saying, oh, David, prove that, you know, soup, we're going to audit you. Show us that soup has become water, at that point, I'm going to say, well, here's where I gave up my lease or I sold my property. Here's where I handed in my, you know, Ontario or Saskatchewan or Alberta hospital card. Here's where I've changed my driver's license. Here's where I've done all those things. I've kept that in a folder just for this day in case I was ever audited. And I can, and, and now I'm going to, and because I have no assets in Canada anymore, there's no pot of gold for you to, to, to go on, and you've got nothing here to challenge my position that I turned soup into water. Okay, cool. So if I had to kind of conclude that basically you could move to any country, you just got to make sure that you have uh, you build strong, substantial ties in the new country, and you sever your substantial ties with Canada or the old country and just, you know get get the driver's license and build all the ties that you can in the new country so that you if if you're challenged that you have a good case but you basically just take the position that yes I've moved and you know uh stop spending time there and stuff well and and not spend too much time in the future yeah. and is there a rule of thumb sorry to interrupt is there like 
because obviously it's like six months to be a tax resident in Canada, but do you ever try to say like, really, you should do less than like four months or less than three months for the- I recommend to clients to decrease their audit that they basically spend minimal amount of time in Canada for the first two years. First two years. And then after that, again, to use a sailing analogy, the closer you get to six months, the closer you are sailing to the wind, the closer you are that CRA will challenge you. You may win, but it's not fun and it's expensive and an emotional drain and you have to hire people to go through an audit. So try to avoid the audit if you can. So if you're going to, again, again, belt and suspenders, get rid of all your ties in Canada, come for, vac- you know, visit family, vacations, et cetera, but spend minimal time in Canada for two years, establish strong ties elsewhere. And again, you know, you're, you're, you just decrease the chances that you're going to get audited pretty significantly. And um, if you are going to, um, you're going to win that audit. Now, some clients say, well, I'm, I have ongoing Canadian source income. So in that situation, you may want to choose a jurisdiction. And interestingly, Dubai has number of tax treaties, including with Canada and the U.S. And so, oh, I've got Canadian source ongoing income here. I'm going to pay Canadian tax on that, but I want to minimize my withholding tax. If I move to a jurisdiction which doesn't have a tax treaty, Canada is going to withhold 30% tax. But if I move to a jurisdiction like the UAE and properly structure it, Canada is only going to withhold 5%. Mm. And because the UAE doesn't tax me, my net is 95%. That's a pretty good result. Whereas if I move to a jurisdiction that didn't have a tax treaty, my net's going to be 70% of that money. Mm. Okay, that's cool. I guess we'll pull in uh, Mel as we're we're closing things out. Uh, And sorry, I switched from Melvin to Mel somewhere in the episode, but I guess we're on uh, good good terms now. Mel, are you still with us? I sure am. <laughs> okay. Um, are you guys kind of noticing that uh, at a global level that it's actually getting harder to leave the high tax countries? I've been hearing that Germany is making it pretty hard to leave and countries are starting to impose things like even after you leave, you have to continue filing or paying taxes in a weird way for well, you know, two, three, five years. And I guess maybe you could use that as a launch pad to see, to just kind of talk about some trends that you're seeing yeah. around everything we're talking about. Vance, the form 8854 is technically called initial and annual expatriation return. Why does it say annual? Because if for, for chance you um, were elected to defer the recognition on your 401k because you filed certain uh, papers with the custodian within the due uh, time requirements, then you might have to file the expatriation statement, even though you've been living in Thailand for 20 years, when you receive distributions from a Fidelity uh, 401k plan 20 years into retirement in Thailand. We have an ongoing uh, filing requirement that's the way it works. And I'm sure that other countries are similarly situated. I'll give you an example. Israel, uh, as David knows, has a very unusual exit tax, which says 
if you leave Israel as a tax resident, you're deemed to have um, left with appreciated property. Uh, let's make that assumption. Then when you leave, you don't pay the exit tax. But when you dispose of that property, wherever you are, you're deemed to have an Israeli exit tax. Now, the problem for Israel is pretty obvious. How are they going to get compliance if someone moves to Switzerland and there's no capital gains tax in Switzerland, number one? Number two, it's probably against Swiss law for a Swiss tax official to disclose uh, anything to the Israeli tax authorities. And so Israel's got a big problem. They can't enforce their exit tax because it covers a, a disposition when the individual sells the asset that they left with. So Israel's in the process of rethinking its strategy. They're in the process of, of negotiating new treaties with other countries to try to get these other countries to help share information about individuals who leave Israel and move to these other countries. I think you understand the complexity here. Every country is looking for revenue, but how do you enforce it? How do you get the other country to help the other uh, partner to the treaty to enforce its exit tax laws? So, and Vance, my view of it is what you're seeing is increased ability to enforce, whether it's the Israelis saying, you know, oh, we determined how much tax when you left, but we didn't collect it until you actually disposed of, or whether it's, you know, your Americans having accounts undisclosed and, and FATCA, and, or whether that, you know, Alberta grandmother with the, um, you know, parent who is an American, what is happening is because of computerization, data mining, et cetera, et cetera, meeting that need for more revenue, you are finding much better enforcement. And so, yes, there are changes to law to add new tax burdens, but what is what we're definitely seeing a lot of is an increased ability for them to locate you to, and to assess you and to collect. And, and to David's point, what the Israelis are in the process of examining is whether they're going to force someone that owns expensive real estate, let's say, outside of Israel, and they want to leave Israel, you've got to basically post collateral and tell the Israelis every every year whether or not you dispose of that uh, French chateau, because they want to know. If you own the French chateau when you were an Israeli tax resident and there was some appreciation in the chateau while you were you Israeli tax resident, you're going to have to keep telling the Israelis every year, even though you're long gone from Israel, if this new um, requirement becomes law, uh, it's in the discussion stages now, but you'll have to report every year. That makes sense. Wow. Yeah, so it's not just the U.S. that's enforcing around the world. We're starting to see it from, from other uh, jurisdictions, other countries. Yes. Well, and, and the C, so what FATCA did was force financial institutions to figure out who their customers were. Do we have any American tuna here? But having gone through that, they've also caught a lot of dolphins. So in identifying, you know, 
Mel, we identified as an American. David wasn't an American, but he's a Canadian. So that then, because that information had been collected, that then brought around the ability for other countries to form together in the common reporting standard, CRS, to say, well, tell us about the Canadians. Now, the difference between, you know, so if I have a, a bank in Poland that, that identifies me, I'm not an American, I said under W8BEN, but I, you know, presented as part of my KYC, my Canadian passport, and as part of CRS, they report, oh, there's a Canadian in Poland with a bank account. The, the problem is I'm not resident in Canada for tax purposes. So yeah, I'm a Canadian, but I'm not a, I'm not a Canadian taxpayer. And so the, the concept of enforcement, and that, that then begs the question, well, are more countries going to be like the U.S. and bring in citizenship-based taxation? And one enterprising liberal MP from Nepean proposed just such a thing. Now, will it come in? There's a lot of reasons why, from a practical viewpoint, citizenship-based taxation, unless you've had it since the Civil War, um, is difficult to bring in and fundamentally changes your tax system. But, you know, never say never. Certainly the Canadians have looked at it. Certainly the French have looked at it. Certainly other jurisdictions have looked at it. Which, again, just as you, even though that one security you have may be great, you may want to diversify citizenships and residences. So that's why we're seeing you know, clients look at diversifying, but you want to make sure that you don't acquire a citizenship or residence which has an adverse element to it. U.S., great place, citizenship-based taxation. Israel, great place, military service. Mm -hmm. um, other jurisdictions, you know, uh, Holland, great place, doesn't allow you to have any other citizenships, no dual citizenship. Germany, well, yes, you can get that other citizenship so long as you allow, you ask the Germans for permission to do so. There are proposals to make that a little easier, but you have to understand all of these different elements, and 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 you know figure out what is the what's the cost benefit. And I I call these second citizenships and residents kind of like fire insurance. Well, you have to understand what the pros and cons are of the, uh, of the policy of the life insurance. You have to understand what's the cost benefit. What's the maintenance cost? You've got a residence, but is there a physical presence requirement? Does it require you to be tax resident? You have to understand all of these things. And unfortunately, a lot of the information that you get on the internet is from commission-driven salespeople. And so... For example, you get lots of people as well. Puerto Rico, wonderful place for Americans. You can save tremendously on capital gains tax. Yes, Act 60, that's absolutely true. But in order for you to comply, you have to spend at least six months of the year physically in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Well, that may be fine for you, single crypto bro. But if you've got a family and you come home and your spouse is there going, I hate this place. The power keeps going out. <laughs> I can't get anything done, et cetera. But don't worry about me. Go talk to little Johnny. And you go in 
Johnny, what's the problem? He goes, well, dad, you know, I, you know, I was head of the tennis team back home and, and stuff, but you know, I'm the last guy picked now because everybody else speaks Spanish and they've been kicking around a ball since they were three years old. And, you know, I've never played, I don't even know the rules for uh, soccer. I mean, football. So, so it's got to be something that you can sell both that makes sense financially, the boardroom table, but that you can also sell at the breakfast table. And Vance, I would note, uh, you may have read this, David and I wrote an article about this, that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's wife is from India. Rishi Sunak was born in Southampton, England. He's of Indian background, but he's a, US, he's a UK passport holder. His wife... And her father was the founder or co-founder of Infosys. His wife is an Indian citizen. India does not allow a second citizenship. She then moved to the uh, UK. And for 14 years, she was taking the position that she was a non-dom of the UK and was only taxed on her UK source income. Well, when the Labor Party found out about this, they were outraged that this woman worth close to $800 million dollars was paying no UK tax on her global income, only on her UK source income. And my response to David was, yeah, she followed the law. She didn't do anything wrong. That's what the law was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and it that's absolutely correct. If you're an Indian, you're not allowed to have another citizenship, nor China, nor uh, uh, Singapore. Yeah, lots to consider. Um, I know we want to wrap up the episode. Do you guys have any final thoughts? Well, one of the things I think as a final thought is, as we've been kind of driving home uh, with some practical examples, is you want to have a team of advisors who know each other's area, know when what they do is going to impact the other area. Uh, We often use the analogy of, of we all get together and, um, you know, we're a team of architects who understand what the client's needs are, understand the ground you're building on, understand all of those elements and come up with an architectural plan and then project manage. And too much information out there is either from DIYers or commission driven brick salespeople. They don't, is it the right brick? They don't care. It's just the one that pays them the highest commission, you know, that it will you know, collapse and if there's a hurricane or a tornado or, or, or an earthquake, they don't care. So it can be an excellent solution, but you need to do it right. And the cost of doing it right is a rounding error for many people compared to the cost of failure. Very true. And that's why we need experts like David and Melvin to, to guide us. This is definitely something you cannot do yourself. No, become an educated advisor, but like like everything on the internet, you know, it's kind of interesting for maybe raising raising issues, but you really need to get, you know, professional integrated advice on a on a global basis. And to my point that neither David or I'm a US tax lawyer, I'm not admitted anywhere else. And I would not profess to give a, um, advice, legal advice to someone about the tax laws of a, or immigration laws of a foreign country. That's for a lawyer or advisor in that other country. 
Um, I can't emphasize that enough. Critical. Yeah, I mean, when we're when we're looking at, you know, if we figured out what jurisdiction, et cetera, even from an immigration and certainly from a tax point of view, we will hire local counsel mm-hmm. uh, to who who are the ones that are able to, you know, build that wall. So we'll hire to beat this analogy to death. We'll hire the the appropriate contractors to to build that element of the house, and really at that point, project manage to make sure that all the pieces, everything's done in sequence, that it's properly built, and that the you know the house will stand and service the client appropriately. And not surprisingly, Vance, it's a pretty small universe of people. David and I know who they are in each country. You know, I'm a member of a couple of organizations and the same people, their names keep resurfacing. So for each country, we have a very short list of people we trust who we know will get it right for our clients. Mm -hmm. Do you guys kind of consider yourselves almost like the the GC, the general contractor, and they and then your guys are you're kind of overseeing the process and you know obviously subcontracting particular pieces maybe in, in the foreign countries, et cetera, and just kind of gluing everything together? For me Yeah, that and being an architect. architect. The most important is to come up with the strategy and the plan yeah. and then to properly, you know, G C it and project manage the actual construction yeah. of the plan. I view it as co-counseling and I view it as having co-counsel in another jurisdiction because I can't opine in that other jurisdiction and I don't want to opine. Uh, professional liability insurance in the U.S. covers um, clearly opinions and advice on U.S. law and obligations, but not on foreign law. And one of the things that Mel and I do, and it was when I when I ran into Mel, uh, which was only a few years ago, into a long, it was kind of like meeting another unicorn in the forest. Oh, you exist! Great, we speak the same language, slightly different species, but we understand each other. And it's one of the things is to we can look at jurisdictions and talk to a client and say, here are the two or three jurisdictions which make sense from a financial viewpoint, you need to understand your family needs, et cetera, and you know, which one of those will be sellable again at the breakfast table. And then we narrow it down. And then we definitely always look at and, and make sure as we get to really figure out the, 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 the details and the finalization of the plan, have co-counsel in in local immigration, local tax law, oftentimes family law. Um, you know, when we're talking about tax, we're talking about a percentage of income. When you're talking about divorce, you're talking about a percentage of capital. And remember, Vance, that unlike the U.S., U.K., New Zealand, and Australia, the rest of the world primarily is on civil law, meaning like California, there's some form of community property, marital property regime. And perhaps, particularly in Europe, some form of forced airship rights of children, which we don't have in the U.S. But you have to take that into account when making gifts and when moving property around. Does the other spouse have a property interest under local law because it's a civil law country that has a marital property regime? Yeah, that's definitely a good point. I mean, Latin America is all civil law. Yes, it is. All right. My guests today, again, have been David Lesperance and Melvin Warshaw. 
We thank them both for coming on. Uh, David, do you want to just uh, tell the audience where they can get in touch with you? Sure. Um, hopefully, there'll be the spelling of my name, but for if not, L E S. P-E-R-A-N-C-E. So lesbronsassociates.com or they can find me, David Lesbrons, on LinkedIn. And for me, it's melvin.warshaw at gmail.com. I also have a website. The website is melvinawarshaw.com. Sweet. David and Melvin, thank you so much again for your time. This has been another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening.